Hello and welcome to episode 62 of Linux Downtime. I'm Joe. I'm Hayden. I'm Gary. And I'm Alan. Good to talk to you all again and thank you for coming back, Alan. Must have uh, been okay last time then. Yep, everything's good. I'm now gainfully employed. Excellent. But still got time for us, which is great. So this episode, I thought we'd do another what have we been up to type episode. So let's start with you, Gary. You've been wrestling with security cameras. Yeah, so um, unfortunately, I had a break into my garage. Oh, no. And I had some security cameras set up with Shinobi, but I wasn't keeping a good eye on it, and I didn't have notifications set up. So unfortunately, I didn't actually catch the event. So like one of the problems, one of the cameras got a new IP address via DHCP, so it just wasn't capturing video, <laughs> right? Uh, the importance of making sure your stuff actually works. And then the other one, I learned another important lesson that if what you're monitoring goes away because like it's a big garage door and it's facing an alley, you want to make sure that your retention period's real high and that you have lots of storage accumulated because like the big garage door got broken and cars going down the alley were starting to trigger it and stuff like that. And like for whatever reason, I only had the storage set to like a gig. So like after like 10 videos, the 10, 10 minute long videos, it just cycled out. So Considering that was on a NAS that has like 14 terabytes of space, I've, you know, obviously increased that value a lot now. But yeah, I'm still going through a little bit of it, uh, trying to get notifications set up, stuff like that, just so like I can actively know when stuff is happening. But like, I still haven't found a good way to like, let me know when the cameras stop working kind of thing. So like, I'm still monitoring it manually a lot, which is really tedious and why it kind of got totally disconfigured in the first place. Are they accessible over HTTP? Yeah. So I'm just using Shinobi to talk to them directly. Actually, no, actually, I don't think, so they have an HTTP interface, but I think they're all just RTSP. So I might advocate you to try a little application called Telegraph that I used to work on because it has a plugin that can check an HTTP endpoint and can just poll it. And depending upon the status, you could do something, you know, and it can page a duty or Slack you or send you a text or something to let you know. Yeah, so I actually use Telegraph right now for basically re-implementing smoke ping. I need to move the cameras around yet too, because one of them, it just like stops sending video for like 10 minutes and then it times out and resets. And unfortunately, it's not something that Telegraph is going to detect because it's like it's not rebooting. HTTP is not responding. It's just like the camera sucks, <laughs> right? <laughs> so like I need to sort it out. But that's a good idea. I'm monitoring them with um, Telegraph. I'll have to look into that. And then I could even push that to like uh, Prometheus or something too and go that way. What was the rationale for it only being like a gig of space? Is that just a default or that sounded like a good number at the time? Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> the problem is I set these up like two years ago or something. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. It seems all right. It just, it wasn't an issue, right? So like I didn't push it too hard. And now I'm, you know, dealing with the side effects of that decision. Well, once you get it all configured, I will gladly volunteer to penetration test your garage. <laughs> um, I don't think my insurance company is going to be happy if I do that, but we'll see. <laughs> but you are going to stick with Shinobi then? We'll see, right? So a while ago, I was looking at um, using Frigate because it ties into Home Assistant and stuff. But like, I never went and got Home Assistant finished being set up because I ran into a stupid problem with that. So maybe we'll go that way. And like with Frigate, they're like, you really should have a, a TPU device, a Google Coral to make it work. And those things are impossible to get. So it's just like, uh, like Shinobi's here. It's set up. Let's see if I can actually finish configuring it right and get something usable rather than just, you know, throwing the whole thing out and starting over. 
That sounds like your approach, Popey, with distros rather than, uh, you know, you find one little problem. Right, that's it, new compave, try Fedora instead of Ubuntu. That's, that's kind of your philosophy, isn't it? Like, try and make the thing actually work. Yeah, I, I do. But also, in this particular case, I went for the proprietary solution. I bought a bunch of ring doorbells. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, using the evil Amazon cloud to store videos of people walking past my house and stuff, which I'm sure everyone is super objectionable to. And no doubt you'll get feedback telling me how bad that is. I know. I know. Yeah, they give it to the police, you know. Yeah, yeah, whatever. But yeah, I've got four of them pointing all over the place. And, uh, you know, I don't have this problem because they all, all the data goes into the cloud. But equally, I have the problem that all the data goes into the cloud. <laughs> Just a different set of problems, really. Yes, exactly. Yes. But I've, I've bought up for that. I, I, I get it. Yeah. But you would never do that, Gary. I don't know that I'd never do that. Like, originally, I had a camera in the garage that was like a D-Link camera that was uploading. Oh, no, it was storing locally to the SD card. I don't know if it's uploading to their cloud, but like one day it just stopped working. And that's when I started this new solution. And again, you know, it wasn't a pressing issue. So it was just like, yeah, I don't know, it seems to work. <laughs> but yeah, like I purposely had it saved to my NAS because I didn't want like if somebody was to get in and that kind of stuff, I didn't want them to grab the camera with the SD card. Because mm-hmm. like a lot of those cameras, even the old one, right? Like you mount a bracket and then it clips into the bracket. So like. If you want to destroy evidence, you were there. You just grab the camera because mm. the SD card's in the camera, that kind of stuff. So I was like, offload it, put it on my NAS. It's in the house. And then it's like, but pay attention to how much storage space you give it because otherwise you got nothing. Yeah, I don't trust myself. I, I used to have a one of those little motorized cameras, the generic you know camera that has like IR LEDs around the lens kind of thing. And you could just use curl or wget to grab an image from the mm. camera. And so I would, I would just use a remote machine that just did a wget and got a frame every second or something like that. And that, that was good enough. But yeah, it's very fragile. And if, you know, IP addresses change, like you say, or the network gets flaky you're boned and i felt like the security not wishing to rub salt in your particular wound gary but i felt the security was more important (laughs) that's another good point you make too right like so i can't get good wi-fi reception in my garage so i'm using some ethernet over power devices to get network there and sometimes those things flake out and you got to unplug them and plug them back in which is another reason Mm. why i need to get more monitoring on it Mm. um but yeah so that's definitely something telegraph would pick up though So, yeah, I'm going to have to work that in. I, the main problem I have is I need to get, like, a dashboard somewhere in my house that can just show me this stuff all the time. Because always, like, if it's on my machine, it's just like, all right, it's going to get lost because I'm doing so much other stuff. Mm. But if there's something that's, like, standing up to, like, a separate monitor, maybe with, like, a Raspberry Pi or something attached to it, I just that's all it does. Displays a dashboard. Even a crappy Android tablet with a browser open, just point into the dashboard or something and just like Velcro tape it to the wall is, you know, so long as it's somewhere prominent that you're going to see it as you walk past. And if you see a blank page or a picture from the camera from three weeks ago, you know, something's gone wrong. That's actually not a bad idea. I have an old uh, Nexus 7, the old, old model. And I have the little uh, carrier dock thing for it to stand on that charges it too. That's not a bad idea. There you go. Oh, I'd have to worry about the cats knocking it over. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Hayden, you've got a special announcement, I understand. Yeah. I have been heads down on my new book. So some of you may know I wrote a book on WSL a couple years ago. 
and I see my new manuscript as a follow-up in a way. I do have a co-author, and we'll announce that at a later date, but it is focused on cross-platform development and cross-architecture development. So it will focus on building applications for both Linux and Windows and x86 and ARM64. It will cover GUI apps, terminal apps. I've got a chapter on incorporating AIML with the Qualcomm SDK, even a chapter on cloud native. I plan to touch on Go, .NET, C++, likely some Python. And it is aimed at somewhat intermediate developers who may be experienced in one of these domains but want to start building for the other, whether they are a Windows GUI app developer and want to start building for Linux, or they're building just x86 and want to be able to build ARM64 applications, or they're a Linux developer and want to either port that to Windows or build for x86 or ARM64. So tentatively slated for release probably late spring, early summer next year. All right. Yeah. It sounds like the goal is to kind of almost put the platform in the background then, at least as far as the user's concerned, and just have apps just be totally cross everything. Well, yeah, I've been thinking and talking about that for a while, kind of the runtimeification of operating systems and how on you know Windows with WSL and Lima on macOS and... Wine and Proton and similar technologies on Linux, the actual operating system you boot first doesn't matter as much. You're almost picking a hypervisor, you know, and then what's going to be your desktop environment, but then you're going to be running multiple operating systems simultaneously. I mean, you see that now with Windows system for Android, where, you know, I can go <laughs> to my in Windows uh, start button and click. TikTok, and it opens the TikTok Android app. So I think that's where this is all headed and plays into containerization and other uh, technologies that we're seeing. As a already multi-platform native application developer, I'm going to be really curious to see how you tackled third-party dependencies and stuff, because building on not Linux is a pain. I should say not Linux, not not Unix, Mac OS and Windows doing like a native application is just not fun. <laughs> so I'm really curious to see how you're going to tackle that. Yep. There's certain pieces to the story that are still landing on Windows, particularly for ARM64. And what's interesting is how often I end up actually building the Windows applications on Linux and using the tool chain there for simplicity's sake. So yeah, not only is the platform becoming less important to the user, but the platform is also kind of becoming less important over time for the developer. I'm curious what you mean by that. Because so like we we use the Mason build system now and that just works the same everywhere. But like I specifically mean like packaging up our third party dependencies for deployment. So additional DLLs on Windows or dialibs on Mac and you know making sure you have an app directory and all that stuff. Yep. That's complicated. And, you know, you get into 
various delivery mechanisms and packaging formats. And, you know, there are just as many packaging formats for Windows as there are on Linux. I mean, you got DEBs, RPMs, you got MSIX, self-extracting EXEs. It's complicated. That's actually useful to think about and maybe something I can tackle in the book. It does sound super fascinating. I've been thinking for a while about trying to push people towards making applications. You know, I registered this stupid website, makealinux.app, to try and get people to make Linux apps and know that they could do it in lots of different ways. I like the idea that you're covering, you know, lots of different bases, both the architecture and the operating system, but also the various different languages and how they all do things slightly differently. Like, you know, Go is pretty straightforward for a console application. You can build for any architecture pretty easily from any one of them. But some of the others are a little bit more, uh, a little bit harder, especially when you start going for ARM64 and ARM HF and x86, and then you change the operating system. So yeah, it'd be good to have a nice resource that covers all of that. Yeah, I hope so. Although with Go, cross-compiling, while in theory, is great. It always comes back to um, file path slashes. So many <laughs> yeah. issues with file path slashes. Yeah. <laughs> Damn you, Windows. So I hope you've had your soldering iron out. I have. I've had a Raspberry Pi Pico sitting on my desk for a while and not had anything to do with it. And I was doing some clearing out of the loft. And uh, I had a Nintendo GameCube doing nothing. And uh, I was just cleaning it and uh, having a play with it. And someone on Mastodon suggested that I mod my GameCube. They were like, oh, have you modded it? And I was like, no, I didn't know you can. And they said, yeah, you can you can use a Raspberry Pi Pico. And I thought, ah, this brings together two things that I have. I have my Nintendo and I have a Raspberry Pi Pico. Tell me more. And so there's this project called Pico Boot. And you basically get a Raspberry Pi Pico, which is the little thing that's, you know, smaller than a Pi W that's almost like a Arduino type device. And you solder four or five wires onto it. And then you crack open your Nintendo GameCube and you have to find the particular parts inside the GameCube to solder those wires to the other ends of those wires to, and then locate the Pico inside the GameCube and put it all back together. And there's some software you flash onto the, the Pico. The interesting way you put software on the Pico is you just hold the button down, plug the USB cable into your PC and it shows up as a mass storage device. And then you drag the software which is just a, a single file onto that mass storage device, the Pico reboots, and that's it. It's flashed. It's done. And so you can then put it in the GameCube. And so it's got this piece of software called Pico Boot. And along with that, you can get a little adapter, which plugs in, there's two different types of adapters. One that plugs in the memory card slot on the front of the GameCube, or there's an alternate version that plugs in one of the ports on the bottom of the GameCube underneath a little flap. And into that adapter, you can put an SD card, a micro SD card full of games and software uh, or homebrew items that you have developed yourself. And when you put all of this together, you turn on the GameCube. And if, like me, you think your soldering is terrible, you turn on your GameCube and think the smoke will be emitted and the thing will burst into (laughs) flames. But what actually happened for me was I got a blank screen and that was because the SCART cable plugged into the back of my TV was a little bit loose. It, I initially <laughs> panicked and thought I'd like wrecked my GameCube, but no, I just like went back to first principles, checked all the cable connections and sure enough, it booted up fine. 
And uh, the software that I've got on the SD card is called Swiss, and it's like a menu system for loading games. So you basically turn the thing on, Pico boot boots off of the Raspberry Pi Pico, loads Swiss off of the SD card, and then you're presented with a menu. And then you can use the controller to navigate, find a game, press the button, and it patches the game, and then loads the game into memory, and then the GameCube boots into the game. It's really quick and easy. But I was really scared of doing the soldering because I haven't done a lot of soldering recently. I did, I did some a long time ago. I worked in an engineering department at a college and I had to do a lot of soldering there. But when you look at the pictures of these are the points you're going to have to solder onto, they're pretty tight. And the, the chips that you're soldering on are, you know, the pins are, are very small. And so I had to take my time. And so, yeah, that's what I did over the weekend. And it was great success. I was very, very happy with it. So does it mean you've just got all the GameCube games now then? Yeah, I have um, an SD card full of software that I can load on my uh, on my GameCube. And I've now moved that GameCube downstairs. And so it's plugged into the TV in the lounge. And I have a Nintendo WaveBird controller, which is the one that you can sit and use from the other side of the room. And so just turn it on, load the game I want to play, and play some old games from the past rather than use an emulator or run it on a pie and the performance not be necessarily that good or you know any of that i'm actually using the original hardware which i quite appreciate because it's nice the controller is lovely and the design of the gamecube is just delightful it looks nice under the telly it's got that retro aesthetic as well but i really liked it and it was really i I felt really relaxed while i was doing it i was quite tense because i was worried that i was going to screw up the soldering (laughs) and in fact i redid the wiring twice because i wasn't happy with it and i wasn't happy with the wires i was using and so i redid it a couple of times so i had a bit of practice and i've got another gamecube and i happen to have another pico so i might go through this whole thing all over again and mod the other one as well and just hope there's no white smoke this time yes it's i mean it's a bit of a a faff because there's there's like i don't know 20 screws in total you've got to undo to take this thing apart you've got to have a special bit because nintendo and you have to take the heat sink off and the heat sink is one aluminium heat sink that covers the cpu gpu and ram and you have to be careful how you get that off and when you put it back you've got to put heat pads back on so i had to buy a set of heat pads and you have to have different thickness heat pads because all the chips are different (laughs) heights so you have to get like one millimeter on one two millimeters on another one and a half mil on another so it's all flat and the heat sink is very close to the chip that you solder to. So, you know, you have to make sure the wires don't stick up in the air, but they're kind of like horizontally across from the chip and stuff like that. So it's, it's quite intricate. I mean, it's only four or five wires. So it ain't that hard. It's not like I'm soldering an actual surface mount chip on the board, but it, it was good fun. And I felt, I felt good about achieving that. All, I was just following instructions on GitHub, but yeah, it's really good. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Well, we'd better get out of here then. We won't be back in two weeks because I want to have a day off at Christmas. So the episode that would have been out on the 1st of January, we're going to skip. And then we'll be back on the 15th of January. So you'll have to wait a little while. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Hayden. I've been Gary. I've been Alan. See you later.